0: Well, again, good morning, and um, it's really great to to see you all. Really great. Yeah. Sometimes I I take a moment to uh, uh, zoom out of what's directly in in my senses, in my sense field, in my vision, and if I just keep zooming out, I'm above the temple, I'm into the clouds i'm into earth and and i zoom out until i'm imagining myself in those amazing uh photographs that uh, we have the opportunity to see uh from one of the satellites and um it's really quite amazing to pull this mind pull this body into that imagination and um how amazing it is that we're here right now that um that we're in this this space that feels cool, feel a little bit of the cool air coming from the mini split and the sun outside, and um, hope that all of you are um, feeling that amazement of of this time together, of this moment. And also want to express my gratitude to my teacher, Galen Roshi. She's, I hope, continuing to enjoy some time in New Orleans with her grandson, Oscar. And she also had the opportunity to see our Sangha member, Phil. There's Phil. Uh, Had the opportunity to uh, meet with Galen Roshi and do some sewing on his Rakasu sewing the Guardians. I understand, so it was wonderful. It's wonderful to know that you know we can zoom out in that space and know that there's Phil and, and Galen Roshi and um, practicing together. And my hope is that uh, that what I say will uh, encourage you at some point in time, and um, not confuse you at any point in time. And if it does, Uh, my deep, deep apologies and welcome that feedback. I'll be speaking about something that I felt um, far away from in my understanding and something that I felt distanced from and my ability to express and uh, to enact freely and openly, and that is compassion. And I was reminded in the in the one-day sitting yesterday by our great teacher Ehe Dogen, when we at the very end of uh, chanting Ehe Koso Hotsuganmon, he offers the teaching: confessing and repenting in this way, one never fails to receive profound help from all Buddhas and ancestors. By revealing and disclosing our lack of faith and practice before the Buddha, we melt away the root of transgressions by the power of our confession and repentance. So, again, confessing and repenting in this way, one never fails to receive profound help from all Buddhas and ancestors. So, no, no matter what I think or believe, no matter how I feel or how much I complain, <laughs> Or get caught, or don't how much, no matter how much I don't feel like I can respond compassionately, I do aspire (laughs) and believe that cultivating and practicing compassion is the one thing that makes sense all of the time. And I, I continuously tell myself this, no matter what obscures that, coming back to the one thing that makes sense all of the time is practicing and cultivating compassion. And there, uh, there are many things right now uh, in my life, especially my school teacher life with 10 to 12 year old children, I teach band um, that don't make sense right now. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm noticing, I notice this quality, uh, this feeling uh if I call it that of of senselessness and at times a hopeless quality. And my intention, my desire is to welcome that quality, to just let it come in, uh, to allow it to rest here with all of you, to allow it to rest in the teachings, to allow it to rest in the profound help. That's coming from all Buddhas and ancestors. And reminding myself over and over again that compassion is the one thing that makes sense all of the time, no matter what. So sometimes when I pull into the parking lot at school, before I open the door, I remind myself compassion is the one thing that makes sense all of the time, no matter what obscures that. And just emphatically saying, my practice is compassion. My practice is compassion. And then what comes in is, but how? And that just swirls around in in different ways. How do we actually practice in this world that we live in? and the different roles that we're all shifting through. How do we sustain caring for others with so much trouble and so much pain, including maybe and especially our own? I'm revisiting the uh, Indo-Tibetan trainings of training the mind and compassion, the Lojong uh, slogans and also revisiting that through Norman Fisher's book, Training and Compassion, Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong. And there are seven points to this mind training and this teaching, and then there are 59 or maybe more little slogans that go with that, just very short sayings to train in, uh, in this practice of compassion. And the first point is to resolve to begin. So that's kind of like first things first, to resolve to begin, first things first, and remember and contemplate these four things. One, the rarity and preciousness of human life. To remember and contemplate, number two, the inevitability of death. To remember and contemplate the awesome and indelible power of our actions. And remember and contemplate the inescapability of suffering. So first things first, resolve to begin and remember these four things. And the second point is to train in empathy, to train in compassion. And I want to read just a little bit from Norman's book on what he, the language he uses and the teaching he offers on uh what he calls absolute compassion and relative compassion and sometimes he'll interchange that with absolute love and relative love and he says Absolute compassion is absolute love, love that's bigger than any emotion, bigger than any object, so big that there is no lover and no beloved. The two merge into one under absolute love's force, love that amounts to a total vision of life as love itself. Within such love, there can be no loss because this love is so big it includes everything, even absence so that nothing can ever be lost. Absolute compassion is the empty, perfect, expansive, joyful, spacious nature of existence itself. Nor is it something that we have added on to existence. It's always been there in life as life. It's always been the nature of how things are. Love has been there all along, but we've been so convinced by our smallness that we have failed to look around and notice it. In contrast to this exalted state and exalted view, relative compassion involves our doing a bit of work. Relative compassion is when I roll up my sleeves and get on with the business of actually loving somebody. Relative compassion is when I try to do something, to help somehow, to offer encouragement, support, food, clothing, better laws, improved political systems, and so on. With relative compassion, we make efforts that we are successful at or unsuccessful at. We suffer losses and cry over those losses. Our hearts are broken and we grieve, and we take delight in our own delight and the delight of others. But relative compassion is a project without end. So that when we are successful at one small part of the job, we are happy but don't have unrealistic expectations. Because tomorrow we have to start all over again with a business of helping, with a business of healing, with a business of mending. And then he says, you may feel exhausted Just hearing about relative compassion, but actually, relative compassion is built on a foundation of absolute compassion, of absolute love. So, absolute and relative compassion depend on each other as two sides of a coin. Without absolute compassion, relative compassion will become forced, and we will become angry and worn out with all of our caring and all of our helping. We can even become furious with the people we are helping. And without relative compassion, absolute compassion becomes a kind of grand abstraction, a big lofty religious idea with no substance to it. What good is a really big love if it never gets applied in the world? What good is a big love if we never love anyone, if we never support anyone? And when we do love someone, when we do support someone, we become awakened thanks to that person or those people. We become liberated from the dream of self-clinging. We become truly and lastingly happy. I notice, at least for me, the relative side of compassion is easier to understand and to see. Um, I think we see it in our everyday lives. We understand pain and the pain of others. We understand reaching out to others, and we understand being helped by others. But as Norman mentions, if the other side of relative compassion is not cultivated, the big love side of the coin. If that's not cultivated, we burn ourselves up. We get discouraged and suffer. And when the thought arises, compassion is a great idea and I believe it, but I can't figure out how to do it. It's just too much. It's not sustainable. and all we can really see is the relative side. Absolute compassion is harder to to grasp. Where do we turn? What teachings can we turn to? I'm turning myself towards these lojong slogans and I'm turning myself also to the Heart Sutra. We We chanted the Heart Sutra this morning as we do every Sunday morning during service. And it is one of those sutras that falls into the category of the emptiness teachings. I step into the emptiness teachings. (laughs) Um, But to use Kaz Tanahashi's translation, uh, the boundlessness of all things, the teaching of boundlessness. It may not sound like it's all about compassion, but I think it is all about compassion. The sutra takes great care to dismantle the relative world for us so that we can see past it and see the absolute world the world of freedom and boundlessness that is no different from the relative world and is not separate from the relative world there are not two worlds i'm not saying there are two worlds there is one one so maybe the job of the heart sutra is to show us a path out of our mistaken and conditioned projection onto the world, which is unsustainable, and it is painful, and pointing us toward a truer and more inclusive, more compassionate view of the world that we move around in moment by moment. And the Heart Sutra offering, as Norman describes later in the book, the Heart Sutra offering a teaching of radically letting go. Radically letting go in order to counteract our very powerful human tendency and tendencies and our, our powerful tendency to hold on stubbornly, to hold on to things even when it doesn't make sense, to hold on even when it causes harm. Once we let go, we can appreciate words like love and compassion and concern for others without mistaking them for something they're not. I'm not what I think I am. My students that I meet with are not what I think they are. I'm not the representation of what I think. The challenging conditions at school and the many humans within that space are not what I think they are. And if we are to respond with the practice, or if we are to respond with and practice compassion in those moments, those moments of rolling up our sleeves and helping, we must ground ourselves and cultivate absolute compassion. Not because the relative is in that corner and absolute is over here. Um but they're they're right here. And our efforts to practice relative compassion in our everyday ordinary life must be recognized with absolute compassion. They're the same. Absolute compassion doesn't disappear as we're practicing relative compassion. As Norman calls it, if this big love or absolute love has any meaning at all, we have to know how to cultivate it in our lives. It will not be enough to hear somebody talk about it. It will not be enough to read some words about it. And I especially have noticed that I've been caught in thinking that Relative compassion is over here, and absolute compassion is over here. Really far away, over there. (laughs) Very far away, over there. And that is my human conditioning. That is part of my conditioned self. And so no matter what we think, believe, feel, or don't feel, The person I see in front of me is not actually what she appears to be, a separate person other than me. She is actually, in fact, nothing but love and connection. And I can replace that with Jaden, in fact, is nothing but love and compassion. Chris is nothing in fact, but love and connection. Blessing is nothing, in fact, but love and connection. And he or she or they is, in fact, empty of separateness. She or he or they is, in fact, an opportunity for compassion and understanding. And is this also what we, um, is this also our Zazen practice? The idea that it's me sitting down in Zazen is a mistaken projection. I bow to my chair or cushion. And I'm taught to bow to it because it is the center of the universe. Everything is there right in that moment. Absolutely everything. Nothing is missing. When I meet that first person in the morning, everything is there. Nothing is missing. Every moment of our life is full of all of life. And when we sit down, we eliminate all distractions. But that reality, we may feel a lot of distractions But that really is the one thing going on. And sometimes in that stillness, even with our habitual and conditioned, entangled and beautiful humanness, we bump into that truth. Full and complete and inclusive of everything. So something arises in each moment. It comes up and expresses itself over and over again. I express myself in relationship with a student. A student expresses themselves in relationship with me. And as Dogen says in the Fukan Zazengi, emptied in an instant, vanished in a flash. Again and again. So radically letting go and giving over to the request, giving over to the gesture, giving over to the expression. We had many opportunities this morning in our service and through all of our forms uh, to practice this. We bow, chant, ring the bells, hit the drum, walk in a prescribed way, allowing us the opportunity. To turn it all over to the body, and the mind is included in the body. To just let it all drop into the body. To give it over and allow the body, the whole our whole being, to bear witness and express each moment. And I find it certainly not always comfortable. Uh, and mistakes happen. And there's also a lot of joy and a lot of gratitude. So we can welcome and move into the discomfort and contact the suffering. We can cultivate the trans- transformation of suffering and allow that vulnerability of not knowing of radically letting go versus knowing and pinning it down, pinning a situation down, pinning a person down, pinning ourselves down. So being playful and being gentle. I can encounter the pain of a student and the expression of that being may be many things, and difficult to stand with. And I can be with that being, and sometimes I can say inside my head, go ahead and destroy me. I still love you. (laughs) (laughs) I can say that uh, when something is just feels unbearable, um, or a situation feels unbearable in wanting to practice compassion. And I am welcoming and allowing myself to it was a little discovery of realizing that part of my um, struggle in a way with 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 compassion and working with my understanding of it and working with practicing was that oh, I'm I'm really grieving what, my idea of what teaching used to be for me. So there's this grieving that's happening related with that. And also there's this grieving around, uh, there's this grief for the students in knowing that in this situation, they're in a system that is not providing them with what they need. It's not providing them with what they need. And there's there's, there's grief there. And so I welcome that and uh, ground myself and allow the drum, the service this morning, just to come in. No, 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 no eyes, no ears, no tug, no body, no mind, no sights, no sounds, no smells, no taste, no touch. All of that's emptied in an instant, vanished in a flash. There is a ceremony in Japan for broken needles, and it's called Harikuyo, and it's mainly uh, for those who make kimonos. Um, and there's a ceremony every year. And I'd like to read a poem that someone has written related to that ceremony, but they're also a sewing teacher. They're someone who who helps people sew their rakasus or, or sews their robes. And they related their sewing practice to that ceremony in Japan of broken pins. And in this ceremony in Japan, they have this block of sweet gelatin, yummy food, and all the little bent pens, broken pens, broken needles are in this offering. And there's a ceremony of offering that object of um, honoring that object. So her poem, things bend and things break. It is in their nature the nature of things. We too often bend and break in living, but that is not the end of the story. That is not the whole story. In our bending and our breaking and our coming together again, our story is created and told. We are more beautiful for having been broken. Our story is not made to be hidden. The needle of practice carries the thread of Buddha's teaching through all of us, singing the song of connection, realizing this wild and beautiful patchwork of bits and pieces that makes us beautiful and whole. So the needle of our practice carrying the thread of the Buddha's teaching through all of us right now. And my cheer is that we will sing this song of connection and that we will realize the wild and beautiful patchwork that's here right now, the wild and beautiful patchwork as we zoom out um, throughout the whole universe the wild and beautiful patchwork in the hallways that I walk in and in the band room that I find myself in sometimes in the garden. So let's keep singing that song.